And now, the world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture. Here he is, Michael Savage. Hi, so as it turned out, hate, anti-Semitism made its way to Sundance Film Festival, where people are calling for a ceasefire now, which is exactly what we had on October 6th before Hamas slaughtered all these Jews. From the river to the sea, Palestine needs to be free from the occupation, that, which is, is illegal. What's the river? Um, Israel. Israel, Israel. Israel's been in the news, and they're losing popular support, mainly amongst the young. I saw a great article in the Jerusalem Post by Dr. Raphael Medoff. Why do so many young Americans hate Israel? Well, I looked into the article and I found something I didn't know. It says it's not it is not ignorance among the younger generation alone that is responsible for this. He said that President FDR was also bothered by the younger generation about foreign affairs in the 1930s. I didn't know this. Did you know that in the 1930s, polls found that 63% of college students favored unilateral American disarmament? This is in the 1930s. And many thousands of them signed a public pledge declaring, quote, we will not support the U.S. government in any war it may conduct, unquote. They didn't care about Nazi Germany. They didn't care uh, that Hitler posed a threat to world peace because they didn't even read about it. They were only worried about being drafted. They preferred fantasies of peace to the reality of a world headed for war. Does that sound familiar to you today as you listen to the Michael Savage podcast? Did you know that in 1934, before World War II, 25,000 American college students took part in a one hour walkout from classes to demonstrate their opposition to U.S. involvement in any war? This student strike mushroomed to 175,000 participants in 1935 and hold on to your desk and then 500,000 students in 1936, which was half the national college student population, a one hour walkout to demonstrate their opposition to U.S. involvement in any war. That was in 1936. This is astounding, isn't it? So we're talking about why do so many young Americans hate Israel today with Raphael Medoff, Dr. Medoff. We'll answer some of these questions where we learn um, that those members of Gen Z who are marching for Hamas or telling pollsters they oppose Israel are driven by a variety of motives. Some it's just old fashioned ignorance or personal factors, such as a desire to join a popular cause. We don't know how this is going to end, but we do know this, that we don't know an awful lot. This is Michael Savage. Now let's discuss this with the author of the article, Dr. Raphael Medoff, right here on the Michael Savage podcast. Savage. Michael Savage, a host like no other. Middle East on the brink, North Korea on the brink. 
Iran increasing its aggression, elections in Taiwan. Look, there's a lot of global instability as we ourselves plunge into primary season. How have you sheltered your savings and investments from potential major setbacks to the economy? You think it can happen here? It can happen here, but it's not too late to diversify an old IRA or 401k into gold. And Birch Gold Group can help you with that. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. As opposed to many other investments, gold thrives in times of uncertainty. It is an important part of diversifying your savings. Now listen, here's how Birch Gold can help make it a part of yours. Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold. And it doesn't cost you a penny out of pocket. You want to learn more? Just text SAVAGE to 989-898 for a free info kit. S-A-V-A-G-E, text it to 989-898 and you get a free info kit. It costs you nothing. Just text SAVAGE to 989-898 with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of happy customers. I encourage you to arm yourself with the knowledge of diversification through precious metals. Protect yourself. Text SAVAGE to 989-898 and claim your free info kit. Protect your savings with gold. Do it now. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Thank you very much. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. You've already heard my introduction to this incredible interview. I was reading the Jerusalem Post the other day, as I do daily, and I stumbled on an article, Why Do So Many Young Americans Hate Israel? I was actually quite surprised for a man who thinks he knows everything to learn that in the 1930s, polls found 63% of college students favored unilateral American disarmament, and many thousands of them signed a public pledge declaring, we will not support the U.S. government in any war may conduct, and the numbers rose through the 1930s. This actually was stunning to the government at the time on the FDR, and now we turn again to this question of why do so many young Americans hate Israel? with Dr. Raphael Madoff. Doctor? Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks. No, it's a, it's a great article, extremely well-researched. So, you know, I read this morning, this morning, where well, I got to find this article just now that, again, it's not surprising to me, in New York Times, um, <clears throat> Biden noticed sanctions on Israeli settlers over West Bank violence. Uh, move also comes to U.S. officials for a recent surge in attacks by Israeli settlers against Palestinians could trigger wider violence. So it looks to me that this war against Hamas, which is a just war, maybe it's gone on too long. I don't know. You know, I'm not a military guy, but the world is turning against Israel rightly or wrongly. Isn't that sort of what you think is happening? I study history because I see uh, lessons from history that that we should learn and that can be applied to today's problems and conflicts. The period of the 1930s and 1940s, which is the area where I usually focus my um, my research, is unfortunately filled with precedents for what we are seeing today. The problems of appeasement of of dictators and terrorists, um, the surge of extremism on college campuses, the um, the general um, uh, uh, hostile focus on Jews, these are all things that that we know well from from the years leading up to World War II, and yet we see them all uh, emerging again today. So the question for me is, 
What can we learn from the 1930s and 1940s um, that can help steer us through the crises of our own time? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, it seems that the Jews are again the canary in the coal mine. There are, of course, differences between then and now. The most obvious one being that today there is a Jewish state, there's a Jewish army. You can imagine how different things would have been in the 1930s or 1940s if that had been the case. Why? What would, it, what would have been different? The Jews would have fled to Israel? That would be the most obvious um, conclusion. Yes, the Jews would have had a haven, whereas instead, um, the Jews trying to flee from, from Europe on the eve of the Holocaust found that the doors to virtually every country were shut, including um, largely shut by President Franklin Roosevelt and his administration. Didn't he send the ship back? Uh, what was the name of the ship? The St. Louis was an, an infamous ship of 930 Jewish refugees who were fleeing from Nazi Germany in early 1939. Um, it was turned away first from Cuba and then right. approached Florida shore. President Roosevelt um, refused to uh, to take any action to help them. Why, why did Roosevelt do that, do you think? Is there any historical answer to that question? It was only a thousand people. All presidents make policy decisions based on a combination of political and military considerations and personal preferences. In the case of Franklin Roosevelt, while we know that in general in the U.S. in those days there was a lot of opposition to immigration, uh, um, it, is, it is also a fact that the immigration quotas, including the quota from Germany, um, were m mostly unfilled. And so there was, generally speaking, there was room in the, in the quotas to let more Jews in. In 1939, Roosevelt had another uh, option if he'd wanted to even lift a finger to help the Jews, and that would have been to admit them temporarily to the U.S. Virgin Islands, because the governor and legislative assembly of the Virgin Islands offered to open their doors mm. to Jews fleeing from the Nazis. So if Roosevelt had wanted to do something, he could have. Um, generally speaking, FDR tended to follow public opinion rather than lead it. So he didn't, it was not his inclination to take a morally courageous stand. Isn't that what Biden's doing right now? Well, um, some might say that. I would just add, though, that in Roosevelt's case, historians have discovered at least 15 private remarks that FDR made in the 30s and the 40s in which he spoke very disparagingly of Jews. So it's clear that he did not want more Jewish immigrants in particular coming to the United States. And that partially explains why he took this extreme position of not even allowing the existing quotas to be filled. Interesting. I didn't know any of that. You write in this uh, Jerusalem Post article, when the Soviets invaded Finland in November of 1939, American communist college students defended the attack on Finland and denounced President Franklin D. Roosevelt's proposal for modest financial aid to the Finns. And not long afterwards, you write, FDR gave a previously scheduled address to thousands of activists from the American Youth Congress, including many of his communist critics. He decided to basically give them a piece of his mind. Uh, and you say, note the contrast between Roosevelt's response to his youthful critics and the recent responses by President Joe Biden to pro-Hamas protesters. What did Biden do uh, recently? He, he sort of supported the protesters, Biden? Well, there have been now three incidents in which uh, radical pro-Hamas protesters uh, heckled uh, and disrupted speeches by President Biden. 
Mm. And in each, in each case, instead of either ignoring the hecklers or, or, um, or criticizing them, instead he took a defensive attitude and said, yes, I'm trying to get Israel to withdraw, and I'm, I'm doing everything I can to get Israel to cease firing at Hamas. Mm. So unfortunately, President, President Biden's attitude towards these hecklers has been that essentially that they're, they're making a legitimate point and that he's trying to implement what they're asking for. So the contrast that I drew in this article was with how President Roosevelt responded when dealing with um, ang angry college student critics of his back in the 30s. Now, this is really separate from the Jewish issue and the question of, of FDR's abandonment of the Jews of Europe. Here, I'm just drawing a parallel between the situation on college campuses in the 30s and what we're seeing today. So then as now, most college students were generally apathetic, but but there's always a minority of political activists on mm. campus. In the 30s, the big uh, movement among extremist college students was um, was the movement for um, we would today would call pacifism, which was mm. um, declaring that they were they would not fight in any war um, that the United States would find itself in. Now, happily, that didn't turn out to be true because when America was attacked um, on December 7th, 1941, um, they did enlist. Um, however, um, the, the pressure that college students were creating in the 30s was for America to, um, to close its eyes to Adolf Hitler's aggression in Europe, his, um, his, his absorb, absorption of Austria, his uh, dismemberment of Czechoslovakia, his remilitarization, the other things that Hitler was doing, there were clear signs um, of a danger to world peace and to America. But college students, who were, um, who were uh, primarily from the far left, were following what was in those days the, the Soviet line, which was that America should stay out of the conflict um, and stay away from Europe's problems. And what that did is it, it undermined um, public's resolve to, to pay serious attention to what Hitler was doing and maybe try to stop Hitler before the World War um, would begin. Savage. The Savage Nation. It's Savage On Demand. Have you ever experienced turbulence on a flight and wondered why? And you can see all the terrain around you. Uh, you've got no issue with visibility or anything? No, nah, everything's peachy. Maybe you've sat on the tarmac for hours wondering why your plane isn't moving. Well, we're outside here. They're saying the ramp is closed. They won't let us park because of uh, Air Force One. Listen in on the conversations between pilots and air traffic controllers on the Air Traffic Out of Control podcast. Cybersecurity declaring an emergency. There's smoke in the cabin. I need to make a landing right now on 31 left. We have the most interesting, wild, and funny ATC recordings you will ever hear. Check out Air Traffic Out of Control wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. reminds me of a saying I heard many years ago that if you, you're not a liberal in your 20s, you have no heart. And if you're still liberal in your 40s, you have no mind. <laughs> I mean, things don't. I'm sure you heard that one, right? Something along those lines. Yes. So students are generally leftist in orientation. And if you go back to the 30s, I would guess World War One had not been over for that long in the early 1930s. So many men were killed for 
reasons they can't even understand. They didn't want to be slaughtered in, in, in a battle they didn't care about. So they saw World War II or, or Germany as nothing to do with them. So what does Israel and Gaza and Hamas have to do with us here today, doctor? Well, typically college students become involved with political causes for a variety of reasons. In the 30s, some of those who joined the far left pacifist movement were simply afraid that they would be drafted if America went to war again. They weren't thinking of the, the bigger issues like, you know, like, like whether Hitler would, would conquer the globe or not. Um, others were, uh, were political activists who were aligned with, with the Soviet Union. And, um, and, and this is the incident that you were alluding to earlier with Roosevelt. What happened is that um, a, large, uh, a large contingent, several thousand uh, college students were invited to uh, the White House in uh, 1939 and um, President Roosevelt addressed them. It happened that um, at, at that time, the Soviets had just invaded Finland. This is no, no, the end of November 1939, um, two months after the Soviets and the Germans had, had carved up Poland. So the next target for the, for the Soviets was Finland. Um, the Roosevelt administration sympathized with the Finns, but did not want to do anything substantial. But the president did propose a modest package of financial aid to Finland. Um, but radical left students were opposed. And, um, and, and so they were lobbying against uh, Roosevelt's proposal. Then, then um, the students, about 4,000 students attended this event at the White House. It was a picnic on the White House lawn. Um, and the president took the occasion to chastise them for um, for opposing uh, aid to Finland and for acting as if uh, Finland was somehow to blame for uh, for being conquered by the Soviets. But the, the interesting thing for me about what FDR said to the radical students that day was that he's he's basically he read them the riot act. He said to them, "What you're claiming is nonsense. Um, it's it, it doesn't make any sense. You you don't know what you're talking about." He said literally, um, and. And that's it. That's an interesting point, because I'm noticing a similarity with many college students today who have been marching and protesting in support of Hamas and against Israel. But that includes that includes Jewish students, by the way. I've seen the leftist Jewish students marching for Hamas, which astonishes me. After a minority, the small minority in the Jewish community um, associate with the radical left and and they do hate Israel. That's true. Um, most of the protests are organized by Palestinian, pro-Palestinian organizations, but there are always a large contingent of ordinary students who are not particularly anti-Israel or pro-Palestinian per se, um, but they but they join into a cause because that's what the cool kids are doing. It seems popular. Um, it's not because they have actually read up on Middle Eastern history. It's not because they're really familiar um, with the facts and, uh, about about the Arab-Israeli conflict, I would um, say it's a safe bet that many of those who are shouting pro-Hamas slogans like from the river to the sea don't even know which river and which sea they're talking about. I'm sure you're um, right. But the, so they're, and sure, so, that's a gen genocidal statement, incidentally. It is, because the, the slogan means that from the river, that is the Jordan River, to the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, the area in which Israel is situated should no longer be Israel. The slogan means Israel should be destroyed. It's millions of, of Jewish citizens should be um, should be slaughtered as as twelve hundred were on October seventh, um, and and a Palestine should replace it. So it seems to me that a significant number of those who are 
or marching today and, and yelling slogans like that on college campuses are not necessarily uh, well acquainted with the issues, but like like the students that that Roosevelt, that President Roosevelt was chastising back in 1938, they're basically ignorant and they were following along um, with an immoral cause. Defense of Hamas is, an, is what I would characterize as an immoral cause um, for an assortment of reasons um, that were no more justified in 1939 than they but, are. But I have to interject. Okay, I agree with you. And I understand the situation from the Israeli point of view. But when you see that so many thousands of innocent, now I know that you hear 23,000 Palestinians or Gazans were killed uh, in the in the counterattack by the, the IDF. And many of them were, in fact, fighters, but some were civilians. Many were civilians just to be rational about it. We can't justify the slaughter of civilians. But look, I remember World War Two. We dropped nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, killing mainly innocent Japanese people. So war is hell. Israel's at war, which, doctor, I think leads us to the bigger question, which I don't know if we can even answer. Do you think the experiment called Israel is coming to an end? How long can this go on with so many people around that nation? And these nations are so powerful today unlike in the past, how, how long could Israel exist when they, they're so hated, when the Jews are so hated by the, by the fanatical Muslims? I'm an optimist. I look at the history of the Jewish people, and I see instance after instance in which the Jews defied the odds, defeated enemies who were more numerous and better armed than they, um, and prospered. Uh, we In our own lifetime, we've seen the miracles of the 1967 Six-Day War, for example, um, and the, the rescue of the, of the Jewish hostages by Israeli forces at Entebbe in 1976. Um, so uh, as a person of faith, I, I, I believe in miracles, but I also, as a historian, I see miracles throughout history, and I have no doubt that the state of Israel will overcome the current crisis, that it will defeat its enemies, what we don't know is how many bumps there will be along the road. And what we don't know is the answer to the broader question. Um, what will the same enemies of Israel, what harm will they do to the United States? Because as we know, the, the exact same terrorists and dictators who are, um, who are, who are, who are trying to destroy Israel uh, hate the United States just as much. And we've seen in recent weeks, what, 165 attacks by Iranian agents, proxies on, uh, on American servicemen and the in, in the Middle East. Um, and so it's not really just the struggle of Israel against those who would want to destroy it. There's in fact a broader struggle here between the forces of freedom led by the United States of America um, and, and the forces of terror and dictatorship, which would like to destroy everything good and decent in this world, just as their predecessors um, in the 1940s led by Adolf Hitler tried and failed. Savage. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. Well, that's a big question. You know, we know that the mullahs of Iran have decimated the Iranian people. It was a very, it was a relatively free, advanced society before Khomeini took over Iran and turned it into a despotic theocracy. I guess that's an oxymoron. A despotic theocracy would be an oxymoron. 
But Iran went from an open society, very advanced society, into a theocracy. We don't see any marches against the Iranian mullahs, do we, on the college campuses? No, the the college campus protest movement today is riddled riddled with hypocrisy. Um, Not only are they not marching against um, the the mullahs in Iran, um, there are many other countries around the world, um, including China, um, where minority groups are, are viciously persecuted and yet um, our idealistic uh, college students are painfully silent. Um, nonetheless, we, we've seen in our lifetime the, the fall of the Soviet Union after um, so many decades of, of communist dictatorship. And, um, and I remain optimistic that, that in the long run, um, just as the Soviet Union fell, just as Nazi Germany was defeated, that the terrorists and dictators who are today posing such a terrible danger will also go down in defeat. Well, I'm not as optimistic as you are. So, you know, I receive a lot of things by email, and one of them is the far left New York Times daily, uh, whatever they send out. Israel, Gaza, latest Biden order sanctions on Israeli settlers, settlers over West Bank violence. That's number one. Israel's controlled demolitions are raising entire neighborhoods in Gaza. A- analysis to end the war. Netanyahu may have to cut deals that could end his career. And we are not very far from an explosion. Settler attacks are rising. Then finally, the final uh, blow in this article is from the New York Times, how the decisions that led to the founding of Israel left the region in a state of eternal conflict. I have no idea what they mean by that, but obviously the New York Times, which was pro-Soviet in the 1930s, hasn't really changed its stripes, have they? Well, from the point of view of um of israel and, and friends of israel the new york times has been a source of um of bias and one-sidedness for a very long time the fact that um the new york times uh has has been has been you know owned by a jewish family is just a point of irony but not really relevant <laughs> yeah not not really relevant to this discussion um the Times often uses its columns to boost that small minority within the Jewish community that is hostile to Israel and Zionism. And that's something to which we've been accustomed for a very long time. Back in the 1940s, um, during the Holocaust itself, there was a tiny group called the American Council for Judaism, which was created in order to oppose the idea of creating the Jewish state. Um, and even though they represented only a relative handful in the Jewish community, they nevertheless were given very generous coverage in the times. And so, um, and, and so that's, that's the crowd with whom the times has thrown in its lot from a Jewish point of view. Well, they're Today, on, the, they're on the side of the drug dealer. They're on the side of the homeless bums who are raging, r- ravaging our cities. They're always on the side against the, the, the stability of a nation. As far as I'm con- concerned, this article is interesting. And as a historian, I want to ask you something because no one, Maybe you can answer this question. I'm going to read the paragraph today, New York Times. One year matters more than any other for understanding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. They write, in 1948, Jews realized their wildly improbable dream of a state and Palestinians experienced the mass flight and expulsion called the Nakba or catastrophe. The events are burned into the collective memories of these two peoples, often in diametrically opposed ways and continue to shape their trajectories. They make it sound as though they're being neutral here. But if they were being neutral, they would talk about the 800,000 Jews who were kicked out of North African nations, uh, Jews who had been in Morocco, 
Tangiers, Algeria, and the other North African nations for hundreds of years, weren't they kicked out right after Israel was uh, created? They certainly were, and that's an important historical fact that is rarely mentioned in the New York Times. Rarely or, mentioned. Or many other mainstream media agency. But I would just add, um, this is not a situation in which the Jews kicked a lot of Arabs out of Palestine, but then the Arabs also kicked Jews out of their countries. The Jews didn't kick the Arabs out of Palestine. Um, when the New York Times refers to uh, Palestinian Arabs, as they put it, experiencing a mass flight, the impression is that they were forced um, to leave the country. In fact, it was not a mass flight as much as it was a, a, a mass voluntary exodus. Um, the vast majority of the, of the Arabs who left Palestine during that first Arab invasion of the newborn Jewish state in 1948, the vast majority left um, either because they wanted to go a few miles down the road to get out of the way of battlefields, understandably, um, but ultimately they left because um, because multiple Arab armies invaded uh, and tried to exterminate the state of Israel before it could come into existence. So their side started it, and as a result of their uh, of their invasion, they, uh, a significant number, hundreds of thousands of Arabs left, but not because they were expelled by the Israelis. Wow. For centuries, they write, Palestine was an Ottoman province with no clear boundaries. Muslims were the majority living alongside small Christian and Jewish communities. The Jews were almost entirely Sephardic and native to the region with few nationalist aspirations. Uh, oh, they go on, of course. I know where they're going. And then, of course, they're going to blame the, the, the European Jews for all of the problems. And uh, that's where they're going meaning they're saying they're foreigners to the area. They don't belong there. They should go back to Poland. And there's nothing I can do about the people who write for the New York Times. But, you know, this conflict has been going on for uh, longer than 19th century, before Israel was created. Uh, weren't Jews subjected to massacres and slaughters in Palestine prior to the establishment of the state of Israel? Well, that's certainly true. Um the but the but the onset of the holocaust of course introduced an entirely new dimension the idea that millions of jews could be slaughtered while the world looked on um was something unprecedented in jewish history in my new book whistleblowers subtitled mm. four who fought to expose the holocaust to america um i explore but in comic book form the um the true stories of americans who um who tried to speak out and who tried to uh, make a, a disbelieving world uh, face up to the fact that what we call genocide was underway. The abandonment of the Jews during World War II, of course, is a, is a well-documented and notorious um, aspect of history. Uh, but there are also a minority of good people, just like there are today, who, who spoke out against, um, against abandoning innocent people and today against abandoning Israel. In the 1920s, the people in the area were called Jews and Arabs. In 1948, the Arabs become Palestinians and the Jews become Israelis. But the fact is, you could say the Jews are also Palestinians because the area was called Palestine until uh, when when was it? Wasn't it named Palestine by the Romans? Yes. Um but uh, 
but that's not the end of the story. The Romans began calling it Palestine um, as part of an effort to wipe out the memory of the historical connection of the Jews to the Holy Land. Uh, the word Palestine then appeared on maps in the centuries to follow, but essentially as a matter of convenience, because maps in English were not going to have um, a Hebrew, you know, Hebrew letters on them. So the, the term Palestine became uh, commonly used throughout the centuries, but not because the inhabitants of the land were called Palestinians. Nobody referred to them as Palestinians. In modern times, after the British liberated Palestine, as it was known, from the Turks, um, the British referred to the Jews as Palestinians um, out of recognition of the fact that the Jews were the indigenous people there. And the Arabs called themselves Arabs because they did not regard the country as Palestine. The name, as you say, had been imposed by the Romans. It wasn't an Arab uh, choice to call it Palestine um, because it had the word Palestine had no um, historical or religious or other significance. So for many decades in the 20s, the 30s, and 40s, 50s, the Arabs in Palestine called themselves Arabs and the Jews in Palestine called themselves Jews or Palestinians. Um, once Israel took on the name Israel in 1948, then you had kind of a rhetorical, um, a, a sort of a rhetorical innovation. And this term, the Pal Palestinians, began to be used only in the 1960s, really, by um, Arab propagandists as a way of trying to claim that the Arabs were actually the indigenous people to the land, which they were not. Um, Muslims only arrived in, in the Holy Land in the seventh century CE. So they were latecomers and they certainly never considered themselves to be a separate people. They never declared an independent country. They never had a movement for self-determination. Um, and there's nothing actually about the Arabs in Palestine that was any different religiously, historically, linguistically, culturally, any different from Arabs in surrounding Savage. Home of borders, language, culture, the Savage Nation. A savage republic inside the plot to destroy America lays out the threats we face, prepare you for what's next, and offer solutions to save our republic. Please wake up and fight back before it is too late. You can buy it right now on Amazon or on bondsandnoble.com. A Savage Republic, Inside the Plot to Destroy America by Michael Savage. Thank you for listening. Share it with five others. I want to talk about just insignificant to most people, the Dome of the Rock or the Al-Aqsa Mosque. I remember when I went to Israel, I don't remember when it was the, I suppose the early 70s, and I was invited there by the uh, chancellor of the Hebrew University. I was going to be a professor there. It's a long story. And the professor said to me, where are you going tomorrow? I said, I'm going to go to the Wailing Wall. And he sneered at me. He was a, you know, a native Israeli, a, a sabra. And he said, that's nothing. It's just the rubble. He said, you should go to the top and see the Al-Aqsa Mosque. He said, because that's where the original temple was. I hadn't, you know, as an American, I had no idea what the Temple Mount was, nor that the Western Wall was just basically the foundational wall of uh, uh, the, uh, the, the structure above it. So now this is a huge flashpoint between Jews and Arabs, the Temple Mount. They're fighting over Al-Aqsa over and over again. There's nothing new under the sun, but I don't know how this can go on. I mean, these clashes that we're seeing now, the uh, Hamas actions 
which were on the level of something Genghis Khan would have conducted. In modern times, I don't know where such atrocities were committed by one side against another in modern times. Maybe the Houthis and the the the, the, the Hutus and the Tutsis in Africa did these things to each other, chopping off arms, burning people while they were alive, killing babies. Since the Holocaust, has there been such actions against people as we saw uh, committed by Hamas against the Jews? Well, sadly, the Holocaust was not the last genocide. And as you alluded um, to, there were um, the mass slaughter in Rwanda in the early 1990s. There was genocide in Cambodia in the late 1970s. Under Pol Pot, right? That's right. We have seen genocide in, in more recent times in Darfur, Sudan. Um, and, um, and the U.S. government has recognized the persecution of the Uyghurs in China as genocidal. So um, sadly, it seems like every generation is faced with the specter of, of evil dictators um, uh, engaging in mass slaughter, torture. In the case of Hamas, uh, mass rape, beheading of babies, uh, and other atrocities. My contention as a historian is that every generation faces this kind of moral crisis, and every generation um, needs to find the uh, in individuals of great moral courage who are willing to speak up and, and, and fight back. In my book, Whistleblowers, I, I focus on, on four particular individuals who, um, who did what they could to try to raise the alarm about the, about the dangers from Hitler and then about the Holocaust itself. And that's what we need today as well. Um, we need people who are willing to speak out against genocide um, and, and, and not, not find political reasons um, and, and excuses to make it convenient to remain silent. The, the genocidal attack by Hamas um, on southern Israel on October 7th elicited sympathy from the world for about 10 minutes, it seemed. And then very soon, um, all the usual suspects were, or were accusing Israel of responding too harshly, um, demanding that Israel pause, that it, it cease firing at Hamas, uh, and so forth. So tragically, what we're looking at today is a situation in some ways comparable to previous, um, previous instances of genocide, where um, people are slaughtered, innocent people are victimized, uh, and, um, and many, many in the international community prefer to look away or find it more convenient to make excuses or to say that the victims, the Jews, should be the ones making the concessions. So in a, in a very real sense, this is a, it's a moral challenge for our, for our generation. There's so much more we can touch on that people probably uh, would be interested in, but I don't know that it's part of this discussion, which is why does so many young Americans hate Israel? I think we touched on that in the beginning, but we've gone into to me, far more interesting areas. And I can't wait to read your book. I think people should know that the, when Hitler was reigning supreme, there was a man named Al Husseini who aided a pro-Nazi coup in Baghdad. And when that coup failed, he fled to Berlin. He met with Hitler. And Hitler told him that the struggle against the Jewish homeland in Palestine would be part of the Nazi campaign against the Jews. Are there still hints of Nazism in the Hamas movement? You know, it's interesting that Israeli soldiers fighting in Gaza 
have been coming across um, copies of an Arabic language edition of Mein Kampf. Oh my God. Adolf Hitler's in, in, infamous manifesto of anti-Semitism and, and violence. Um, some of the copies that they've discovered have copious notes in the margins in Arabic from Hamas members who were obviously been studying it and trying to learn from Hitler literally um, how to combat the Jews. So when you ask about connections between the Nazi era and, and Hamas today, well, Hamas itself has demonstrates the, demonstrates connections both indeed by um, engaging in mass murder, rape, and beheadings, um, and in word by uh, studying uh, Hitler's writings in order to try to mimic them. Incidentally, there are schools both in uh, Gaza and in the Palestinian Authority territories that are named after Husseini, after the Mufti. Um, so by naming schools after, after him, they, it's, a, it's a way of expressing um, how much they honor and revere him, even though he was, as you, as you note, a, a Nazi collaborator. Where do you think this is going to go? I mean, let's just talk one man to the other, Raphael. Can Israel sustain? I mean, you believe in miracles. Okay. We, but aside from miracles, with such hatred surrounding them, okay, there's peace with Egypt now. Jordan is more or less a neutral party in the mix. President Trump created the Abraham Accords, which brought Arab and Jews. To, he should have got a Nobel Prize for that, by the way. And it was it was my friend Avi Berkowitz who largely wrote it along with the uh, the folks within the Trump administration. They were never noted for this. They brought Arabs and Jews together. But look where we are today. It seems everything has gone backwards under Biden. I think Israel will survive and prosper whether or not the Arab regimes around it ever come to their senses and agree to recognize Israel's a right to exist and, and live in peace um, in peace with it. I don't think in the end, um, Arab recognition is, is necessary for Israel's survival. Of course, everybody would like the, the various Arab regimes and the Palestinian Arabs um, to, to uh, finally recognize that it's, it would be better to live in peace with the Jews than constantly make war against them. Um, nonetheless, um, we, we as Americans, um, managed and survived and prospered even though you know much of the globe was occupied by the by the soviet soviet dictatorship um and in general this seems to be the course of human history that there are um awful people and so who sometimes rise to power and they create a lot of trouble and strife but good people and free people are um inevitably are are always able to come out on top and to manage um until the day comes that that an empire like the Soviets uh, crumbles. You know, looking at a map of, of Israel today, you see Lebanon, you see Syria, you see Jordan, you see Egypt, and then you see uh, Israel, you see the West Bank, so-called, which I would say fundamentalists or nationalist Jews don't call the West Bank, they call it Judea and Samaria. Uh, people don't realize that Jordan didn't exist until, what, 1948? It was carved out of the desert by the sheriff of Mecca as a gift. There was no nation called Jordan. And uh, they also don't know, and I'm sure you could fill us in on the details, that more Palestinians had been killed up until now, I guess, by uh, Arabs, meaning Jordanians, in the Black September uprising 
when they try to take over Jordan. I mean, the Palestinians went into Jordan. They were invited into Jordan. And then they try to overthrow the Jordanian king and take over Jordan. And the Jordanian, Jordanian military killed how many thousands of Palestinians, so to speak, in the Black September uprising? People don't know that. So you look at the West Bank, Hebron, Bethlehem, Nablus, Jenin. I, you know, I, I've been in Israel a few times and it was years ago. I almost moved there. But I often wonder about Gaza. There's a, an interesting question when you bring up Gaza itself. It was the greatest mistake that Sharon ever made when Gaza was so-called given back to the Palestinian people. He, remember, I remember what happened. I remember I was on the radio at the time. It made no sense to me because soon after the do-gooders, millions of dollars were spent building nurseries in Gaza by the Israelis. They're growing flowers for export fruit. And the minute the Palestinians were given Gaza, they destroyed the nurseries and turned them into firing ranges for their rockets. They didn't grow flowers and they didn't grow oranges. Why is it that they took a piece of land like this, in your opinion, which could have been a new Mediterranean hub? You look at Gaza. It's on the Mediterranean Sea. It could have been a new a new uh, Morocco. I mean, a, a new Monaco. It could have been a new Monaco, Gaza. It could have been something beautiful. It could have been um, a land of milk and honey. Why did those who run Gaza turn it into a war zone? You know, I've been referring to my new book, Whistleblowers. Here's my prediction. Somewhere in the next few years, a whistleblower from inside the Biden administration's State Department or White House will emerge. Uh. And, and we will discover that behind the scenes, um, U.S. policymakers um, privately realized that it was a um, that that Israel's various territorial concessions over the years, including withdrawing from Gaza, turned out to be folly. That uh, we'll we'll find that privately they know that um, Israel's concessions have never been reciprocated. That Israel takes enormous risks and is always oh, and and the reward it receives is more violence and more terrorism. We'll find out that. But privately, um, even the State Department Arabists, as we call them, um, recognize that the Palestinian Arabs are committed to an ideology um, which views all of Israel as illegitimate and which seeks to bring about Israel's destruction. Um, and I think we will find that privately, they all agree that uh, pushing for the creation of a Palestinian state would be a tremendous risk for Israel to take. But, but Biden, Biden came out, the headlines that what's his name blinken is secretly working towards that end right so there's one of two possibilities either secretary blinken and his colleagues genuinely believe that pushing israel back to being nine miles wide as it was before 1967 and creating a palestinian terrorist state next door will bring peace either they believe that or more likely and this is my prediction about a future whistleblower more likely they know it's not going to bring peace but it's a politically convenient position for um, for this administration to take because of pressures from within the Democratic Party, um, just as in the past when the Republican Party was the you know was the party that was harsh towards Israel when James Baker was Secretary of State, they had their political reasons for constantly pressuring Israel. Uh, today, uh, things things have changed. Today, it's the Democratic Party um, which is taking that position, and. Um, and my suspicion is that privately they realize what they're doing 
is um, is very dangerous for Israel. But um, if they, I think they figure if they can pressure Israel to go along with it, then um, you know the Israel will have to deal with the consequences. Um, Americans will not have to deal with the consequences. It's the Israelis in the end who will who will have to figure out can they survive if their country is no wider than Washington D.C. Well, I don't think we can solve the problem in this podcast, but you know, you look at the map and you look at this huge piece of land between Jordan and uh, the state of Israel. You see what the, those in Gaza have just done to the Jews. When Gaza is approximately, it looks to me like about one thirtieth the size of the so-called West Bank in land area, maybe even smaller than that. So if they took Gaza and did such a horrible thing to Jews, you have to ask yourself, what would happen if the Arabs were given a nation in the West Bank and Gaza? They wouldn't raise roses for Europe. They would not grow oranges for export. They would seek weapons from Iran and other places to wipe the Jews off the map. So, you know, after this happened on October 7th, I believe, I was surprised that the spine that I saw in Blinken, who I've never been at all impressed by. He always looked like a wishy-washy Neville Chamberlain type to me. All of a sudden, I learned that 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 Blinken, our secretary of state, had Holocaust relatives. The man showed emotion and strength. He was totally sympathetic to Israel. Now, all of a sudden, he's sympathetic towards the Hamas movement. It, it's stunning to me what comedians these politicians are. I would argue that we have not seen a situation as as dangerous as the one we're facing now across the region since at least 1973. You can see why most Israelis are very skeptical about this idea that Secretary Blinken and President Biden are pushing now to create a Palestinian state uh, next door. Because from the point of view of the Israeli public, that would be a state run by the same gang rapists and baby beheaders and their cheerleaders um, who perpetrated the October 7th atrocities. It's a dilemma uh, for the Israelis because they, the Israelis have a lot of um, allies around the world, but they're mostly what we would call fair weather friends. Um, Israel got some sympathy for a very short time right after the, the mass murder and raping on October 7th. Um, but soon, uh, both the United States and um, friendly European countries returned to their old, their old positions of pressuring Israel to make the concessions. Um, and never and never demanding that the Palestinian Authority, for example, just stop denying the Holocaust. You'd think that would be a, a, a very uh, an ele elementary demand. And yet the Palestinian Authority is still headed by a Holocaust denier. And the, the news media and school textbooks in the Palestinian Authority, just like in Gaza, um, are filled with with glorification of terrorism, denial of the Holocaust and other kinds of anti-Semitism. And yet we find the international community remaining silent. Ultimately, that's the reason there was an October 7th, because an entire generation of young Palestinian Arabs were raised on a diet of anti-Semitism and worshiping terrorists and aspiring to the destruction of Israel. It's ultimately it's the education system um, in Gaza and the Palestinian Authority areas, which is at the root of the entire problem, just as in Nazi Germany. Um, it was the educational system that reared, a, you know, a, a generation of young Germans who were willing to follow Hitler and um, into, you know, in, in, into the committing the Holocaust. You know, th this leads us back. And I don't know if you even want to comment on it, but I, you know, the day this happened, I asked myself, how could the most advanced surveillance 
nation in the world. I mean, Israel has cameras and watchtowers in Gaza. And we read reports from female IDF um, soldiers about a week later that they tried to say there was unusual activity coming on the other side of the Gaza border and that their commanders said, don't report this or you'll be court-martialed. You know, is this sort of like the, the, the conspiracy theory that Netanyahu let this happen to coalesce the Israeli people behind them and it got out of hand? What do, no, what do you think that, about that? No, that's completely impossible. Um, every Israeli from the prime minister's office down to the, every, every, the average taxi driver was horrified, appalled by what, um, by what Hamas did. Um, Israel was caught off guard. Eventually, they'll do it. They'll conduct an internal investigation. They'll find the specific security lapses. Um, but that can happen. Look, uh, our our twin towers um, and our Pentagon were attacked on 9/11. Um, it's not because America was unprepared. It's because terrorists sometimes will find a, a, a security a lapse or a mm. weakness in the system, and they'll exploit it. To, to me, the 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 tragedy that is not being discussed is um, Israel could have destroyed Hamas and all of its tunnels and all of its rocket launchers and all of its bases years ago. It's not as if the Israelis didn't know yeah. that Hamas was building up an army underground in Gaza. It's that the United States, this goes back to the Obama administration, was pressuring Israel not to hit Gaza too hard. There were two previous Gaza wars in 2008 and 2014, and both times the Obama administration pressured and forced the Israelis to end their military operations prematurely. And as a result, Hamas was able to continue building and growing. You know, a few years back, Dennis Ross, who was one of the um, one of the U.S. Mideast envoys in those days, admitted publicly that he pressured Israel to allow Hamas to bring cement into Gaza. He said the Israelis warned that the cement would be used to build tunnels, but he told them that they should allow it in because they, Hamas needed it to build houses. Well, of course, um, it was used to build tunnels, not houses. Um, but, um, but that was just an illustration of how year after year, the U.S. administration pushed Israel, or I should say, held Israel back from hitting Hamas um, until finally the whole situation exploded. Let's conclude with your, your new book, because the book is called Whistleblowers, Four Who Fought to Expose the Holocaust to America. You describe it as a nonfiction graphic novel. What do you mean graphic novel? Well, the term graphic novel today is used to describe a what we would call a long comic book. Instead of mm. a 24 page typical comic book, this is a 140 page comic book in effect it's just a, a, a different medium for telling um for teaching history is it with cartoons and and such it's there it this the stories are they're non-fiction they're true stories but they're told in in comic book format it's not for children um although no, but people, i mean are there drawings in your book yes it's like it's like reading one really long comic book um which sheds light on those who did speak out during the Holocaust and tried to get America to respond and help rescue Jews. Who, who is Dark Horse Books? I, I think I know the publisher. They're, they're a major publisher of comics-related books. Well, I have a friend who writes comic books. He's a very famous author, but he also writes comic books. Jeff uh, Rovin. You ever hear of Jeff Rovin? You know, Jeff? sure. Jeff's yeah. a friend of mine. 
he would love this book. Uh, I would love this book. Doc, as, an as an educator, I'm always looking for new ways to try to reach young people. Because no, I love that. I, that's why I'm, I'm impressed with what you've done here. I, I need to get a copy. I, I would love to read it. What other graphic novels or graphic books have you ever written as a, as a straight off old style, brilliant historian? Any others? Well, this is my first book in comic book form. I've, <laughs> written, I've read more than 20 traditional form uh, history books. But here, what I'm doing is I'm looking for another way to reach those college students about whom we've been speaking, uh, the, ones, the ones who are really not acquainted with with the, the abandonment of the Jews during the Holocaust and other important information. So I want to present these stories in a format that young people in particular will find more um, digestible. But it's not it, written. It, maybe the next next edition of Whistleblowers can not only have cartoons, but perhaps there can be a little pocket in it for a marijuana or, or such a marijuana joint in the back of the book. Or you buy the book and you get a joint to smoke it with. Dark Horse Books, Whistleblower by Dr. Rafael Madoff. Where are you located? In Washington, D.C.? Yes, the David Wyman Institute for Holocaust Studies, based in Washington, is named after the famous historian um, who wrote the book, The Abandonment of the Jews, which is the definitive study of President Roosevelt's response to the Holocaust. Well, be careful you don't get carjacked on the way to or from work. I can't believe what's happened to the nation's capital. Yes, it is getting scary. Home break-ins and, and, and Biden doesn't see this. The mayor doesn't see this. Well, the problem of crime in America is a little bit beyond my area of expertise. All right. We won't I share with you. I share with you concern about the direction that we're going in. Yes. Dr. Madoff, thanks for your time. Uh, and, um, at any other time, you you have a historic an article about anything to do with history. I'm ready to run it on my podcast because it's a subject I'm fascinated by, and it, by the way, it goes way beyond Israel. I'm I'm fascinated by history in general. Right now, I am studying uh, Roman history, for example, like all over again. I can't can't get enough of Roman history, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, and the parallels to to America today overwhelm are overwhelmingly significant. We'll leave it at that. Dr. Madoff, I hope I'm pronouncing your name again. We don't want to confuse you with the Gonofin with, with a similar <laughs> name. Thank you. I appreciate that. No, I, I get it. Doctor, thanks for being with us today on the Michael Savage podcast and good luck and stay safe. Thank you for having me. Take care. Thank you very much. Savage. Well, thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and you'll learn something from it. We have about 400 other episodes available for you to listen to absolutely free. You can go back into our vast library of podcasts and listen to any one of them at any time. And remember this, if you want to listen to my podcast ad-free, sign up for the Savage Premium Membership and get access to ad-free podcasts as well as some premium content from our Savage archives. How do you sign up for those ad-free podcasts? please visit michaelsavage.com for a link. Again, thank you for your listenership. This is Michael Savage.